0: James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26 uh, we will be there. I would encourage you uh, to uh, just mark in your mind uh, Genesis chapter 20. Uh, it's actually Genesis 12 through about 22. Uh, we won't hit all those verses today. Uh, and Joshua chapter 2. Uh, as we go through, we're going to make some references to those. But this is the third week we've been looking at this. Uh, it's vital that we understand our faith, that we stop and really consider what it is to say that we believe. Uh, we live in a world and in a time and day and time where it's very easy to say I believe and that just be it. Uh, and then, okay, well, I, I said I believe. Isn't that enough? Well, James challenges that and we as believers, as Christians, need to understand why. And so what went from a two-week study turned into a three-week study. Uh, and I, I promise you today we'll finish with these verses. So three weeks... Um, Will be done. So uh, let's read. I'll pray and then we will uh, just dig in. Beginning in James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself Faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, So also faith, apart from works, is dead. Let's pray. Father, would you encourage the faithful? Would you give them a greater assurance of their salvation, of their justification, their right standing before you? And would you give faith, grant faith to those who have only said it out loud but have never truly believed? Would you call to faith those who have not yet claimed it even? That they may trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. That they may trust Jesus for salvation. This is the work that you do through your word. Would you do it today? I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Week number one, we looked at this, and it was supposed to, supposed to be more than this, but the point we looked at was Christian, we're saved by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the faith that saves is a faith that works. That was the point, that was the main point of the day. We looked at these verses, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, in light of the broader teaching of Scripture. We stepped back and said, well, wait a minute, James is saying we're justified by by faith and works. And Paul says we're justified by faith alone, not by works. So we had to work and and just work through the the nuances of what they're saying. And what I showed you was that Paul and James are not contradictory to one another in, in the slightest. Paul is focused on works that precede salvation. So there's no good works that precede salvation. If we're working apart from faith in Christ then they are not good works. They're not righteous works. So Paul's focused on what precedes salvation. James is focused on works that are produced by salvation. See, his point is that having been saved by faith, you have this whole new identity. Everything about you changes. Your desires and your affections change. Your priorities and your purposes change. The, The ways that you interact, react, and just act in general change. And that's not dependent upon the circumstances of your life. It's because you've been made a new person. And Paul's in agreement with this. You've become new. The old has gone. The new has come. The the command is to put off the old and put on the new. Paul and James are in complete agreement. Their their perspectives are complementing one another, not contradicting one another. As the reformer John Calvin said, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. As James says it, he's more reliable than John Calvin. Faith without works is dead. It profits us nothing. It is useless. It has no purpose. It is dead. Which brings us back to what he wrote and and, and what we looked at last week. When we looked in, and we, okay, so we've seen his teaching, we've understood his point, and now we're going to see it illustrated, and, and that's what we looked at. We looked at four illustrations that he showed us, and, and this was the point. We are saved by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the faith that saves is more than a claim to faith and accurate knowledge of God. It's more than me just simply saying something, and more than me just holding the right information. In fact, he, as we looked at this, the way we looked at it, we looked at these four illustrations and we contrasted the first two illustrations against the second two illustrations. The first two illustrations were negative. There was no works, there was no production, no, no, nothing coming forth. Uh, and, and, and so they were illustrating or exemplifying a dead faith. The second two illustrations of Rahab and Abraham were positive. They showed us work that proceeds from or proceeds from I should say it comes out of this faith that saves us the faith that saves does more than talk is expressed in word and deed the first illustration highlights if you if you look at that first illustration in verse uh, 16 uh, or I'm sorry 15 if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them go in peace be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the bo- needed for the body what good is that his question is per, per, pressing us to, to say and agree, it's no good. It doesn't do anything. To, to bless somebody, just say, oh, I'm going to pray for you. Not to say that prayer isn't important. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But to just simply say it and not actually do anything about it when you can, it, it does nothing. Faith that's like that, that's just spoken is dead in the same way that well-wishes are empty and fruitless. It's expressed in word and deed. We see that contrasted against Rahab. Rahab, who, who sees the, the spies or messengers. As It's interesting. I just now picked up on this. Uh, in the Old Testament, they're called spies because they're going to spy out the land. But James sees them as messengers because they were people... That, like, he's on the right side of that, right? So he calls them messengers. Anyway... Sorry, just noticed it as I was reading. Um, so she sees them in need, and what does she do? She serves their, their, their need. Also Abraham, who God has, has commanded to get up and leave his home and, and go in, and now go and sacrifice his son, and Abraham obeys God. He did more than just talk. He acted. He acted in a line with, in, in accordance with what he said. So the faith that saves does more than talk it's expressed in word and deed. The faith that saves does more than know the right things. It trusts the right one. The second illustration, you can see it in verse 18. You, he starts into this debate with an imaginary person. And, and he says, <clears throat> uh, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The second illustration is of demons having a right knowledge of God, even an emotional response to God, and doing them absolutely no good. And in fact, what he suggests here is that you can have the right knowledge of God, you can have an emotional response to God, but if there is not real faith that leads you to trust God, then you're no different than the demons, In an environment when church is more about production and about a show and about an emotive response and how I can manipulate and coerce you in this moment to get you to respond to me in some way, we need to be confronted with this. We need to hear this for our good. Having the right knowledge and even an emotive response is empty, it is dead, it is useless. The faith that saves does more than know the right things, it trusts the right one. That's why I pointed you to Christ, and the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And finally, the third point that I made, oh, sorry, let me, let me just contrast that against the two, two or four illustrations there. So, so the demons, they get no good out of it, but in contrast, Abraham He's called a friend of God. He's justified. He's saved because of what he does. And he does what he does because of what he knows. Rahab's the same way. She's justified. And she's justified because she believes that God is to be feared because he's powerful. We're going to see that in her story today. The faith that saves does more than know the right thing, it trusts the right one. The faith that saves is proved to be saving faith by what it does in response to truth. We cannot separate faith from works, they intrinsically are woven together. Faith is proven genuine when we act upon it. We all trust something, and our actions reveal it. You look pretty comfortable in those chairs. What is it that led you to sit down in those chairs? Illustration I use every time, every compound I walk into in Africa as I call these people who have never, heard, they've only ever heard right information, well, semi-right information about Jesus. As I call them to trust in him is the only way. I ask them, what led you to sit in that chair? Well, I believe it will hold me. What if what, what if you came into my compound and I offered you a chair That was broken and was missing legs. I wouldn't sit in it. Why? Because I don't think it would hold me. You see, what we do is driven by what we believe. Everything you do in your life. Whether good or bad, righteous or evil. Everything. Is driven by faith. But there is only one faith that saves because there is only one way to salvation his name is Jesus Christ you see we cannot separate faith from works because faith naturally or i'm sorry well faith naturally produces work works naturally come out of faith this is James point if you're saying that you are trusting Jesus Christ, that is not necessarily saving faith if it has not invaded the way you live. That kind of faith is dead. It's as dead in, as, as, as dead faith believing in an idol, dead faith believing in a chair to hold you, dead faith that, that sets you up for something in this life, but will not provide Dead faith that will leave you wanting. You can claim faith in Jesus Christ all you want. But if you will not act on that faith, that faith is useless. That was the point of last week. I'd love to re-preach that, but I'm not here to re-preach that. In fact, we've got lots to do today. Because James doesn't just want you to see that, that, that faith without works is dead. He does. I mean, he makes that point over and over. But he also wants you to see the inverse of that, that saving faith works. Saving faith works. And this is clear in the example set by the second two illustrations. Abraham and Rahab both express their faith both in word and in deed. And they act upon what they know about the God who they are believing in. Faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ saves those as honorable as Abraham and as unsavory as Rahab. But the faith that saves is a faith that works. James couldn't have picked two more radically separate people, radically different people. They are at opposite ends of the spectrum over and over as you compare who they are. Abraham, noble as the Jews. Look at him. Rahab, someone that they just like, oh, we know she's in our history. But I don't think there's any Jewish people who would have been running around talking about she belonged to God's people or had been justified. This is New Testament stuff. He couldn't have picked two more radically different People. And one of the things that they have in common, they're both acceptable to God. They have both been called righteous by God. They have both seen their sins forgiven by God because of what they believed and because their belief was proven true by what they did. Brothers and sisters, this is why it's so important for us to see this. Uh, this is why I felt compelled to, to slow down and take a really hard look at this. This isn't a passage to, to, to pick up and beat each other with a stick. Well, I can't see your faith! Like you're not acting up to my standards! In, in fact, I, that, that, that's not the way James presents it at all. This is, this is calling us each to look into ourselves. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that inside the church we shouldn't be speaking about these things and calling to each other to these things. But, but, but James is not presenting this passage as a, as a way that we can just condemn one another further. You're not acting enough. You're not depending enough. You're not de- demonstrating your faith enough. Instead, James, I think, writes this to encourage his readers to check their faith, to ensure it is actually profitable to them. He wants them to know that they can stand in assurance. Are you truly holding to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are, it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whether you're of noble birth or ill repute. It doesn't matter whether you're a major biblical figure or a minor biblical figure. In fact, it doesn't matter if you're in the Bible at all. That should be good news for those of you whose parents didn't love you enough to give you a biblical name. Mine did. It doesn't matter that people know you or don't know you. It doesn't matter what your religious background is outside of Jesus Christ and the faith that's placed in him. We are all pagan. It's really easy to look at Rahab because she was a harlot. Prostitute and say, "Oh man, God really justified her." You know where you know where God found Abraham, called him Abram then, in what eventually became Babylon. He's a pagan. Oh, he had a lot of good history once God approached him. But he was a pagan who would have worshipped multiple gods. See, it doesn't matter what your religious background is if you have faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, what language you speak, or what nation you're born in. It does not matter what color the passport is that you carry. Who you are is not of primary importance here. I hope that kicks you in the gut just a little bit because as Americans, we think a little bit too much of ourselves. Who you trust in Matters for everything here. you see these, there are two things that matter. first is who it is that you trust in. but second, is that trust real? or is it just a claim that you made? Is it just knowledge that you hold? Is that faith That you claim a good faith, a profitable faith, a saving faith. Or is it useless to you? Is it dead? Does this faith you claim produce works? Because saving faith works. I don't know that there's any more important questions that we could ask ourselves. Is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ a saving faith? Or a dead faith. See who our faith is in. Whether that faith is saving faith or dead faith. It's the difference between being saved. And not saved. It's the difference between being justified. Counted righteous. Or standing condemned. It's the difference of having the hope of heaven. Or the promise of condemnation. Now, you may not feel like that's as important as where you're going to eat lunch. But I think that's a lot more important than where you're going to eat lunch. This issue of faith matters for our life today as it, as it, as it does. It matters as much for our life today as it does in the, in the life to come. That's why when I saw it was not going to be able to get done in... Well, originally I intended to do this in one week. Then I thought I need to do it in two weeks. And here we are at three. I'm convinced that this is one of the great weaknesses of the American church. Is that we have learned to flippantly say we have faith. And accept that from one another. Accept that in ourselves. And then go on about our life as if it only matters for the day I die. If you can't show me your faith today, then I would plead with you to hear what James has said. Your faith is dead. But if you're going to show me your faith today, then I'll stand and rejoice with you. Because that faith is In it, we are justified, found acceptable to God, but pleasing to him. We have access to him. Saving faith works. Regardless of who you are, it works. It saves those and it saves those as noble as Abraham and in the savory as Rahab. You know, it is saving faith by what it does, which begs the question. What does faith do? The last week in this sermon. Last week, I emphasized to you that that it trusts the primary responsibility of faith is to trust. And I did that intentionally and I pushed this off to this week to answer this question more specifically. I pushed it off for for this reason, because we are so quick to say, just give me a list. I just want to know and I'll go and do it. I'll start checking those things off and, and I just need a list. It's So easy to depend on a list and not the one who saves. It's so easy to to, flip that, to, to to flip that and say, "Well, look at what I'm doing. I must have faith." It trusts. Primarily, it trusts, and that trust then, it naturally gives way to deeds. The doing comes very naturally out of trusting. The the doing comes very naturally out of a faith. If if you will trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. I don't think I'd have to... Man, I want to be careful. I almost spoke too broadly. If your faith is real... You're not just looking for a list to check off. You're dealing with the desires to obey. You're dealing with a new identity that longs for the good thing and rejects the bad thing. But just like we have our, just just like when we have children, children know how to act. Because they're your parent. Or because you're their parent. Sorry, I said that backwards. I, I, I have to listen to myself up here, right? Children know how to act as a result of their identity as your children. But how did they learn to do that? You taught them. And our father has loved us enough to say this desire, this new longing, this new affection, this new priority, this new, this new um, this trust that leads you to want to obey. I'm going to let my apostles and I'm going to let these men, I'm going to inspire them with the word that they can teach you because he loves you like his children. And so, having said that our primary responsibility is trust, let me just say James illustrates this and gives us two overarching principles about how faith acts or what faith does. And I think we can see that, again, by looking at these four illustrations, but looking at them from a different perspective. Last week, we contrasted the first two against the second two. This week, I want to contrast the first and the fourth against. And then, not contrast, but see the complement between the first and the fourth, and the complement between the second and the third. We're going to start with the second and the third. We see that both of these have a reaction to God. There's the, the demons who know God and shudder who do nothing. And then there's Abraham who knows God, has had an emotive response before God. You can see it across his story And he acts. And from that, I would summarize this. Saving faith submits to God no matter what the cost. Saving faith submits to God no matter what the cost. That's what we see Abraham doing. His life, because he trusts God, because he believes in who he is and knows him, he submits to him. Now... I think clearly we can see that first that comes out maybe in the area of obedience. When God shows up and meets Abraham, and you read about this in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 7. You can flip back there if you'd like and mark that. God shows up and calls Abraham to get up and go to a land that he does not know, but he will be shown So far as we know, Abraham has no other experience before that with God. This is, as far as we know, the the first interaction between God and Abraham. Do you know what Abraham did? He got up and he took his family and he gathered all of his belongings and all the people that would have been considered part of his household and where he was responsible to. And he led them out and said, I'm going with God. And hey, by the way, you're going with me too. He obeyed. This is, the same, this is the same man who, who, who wouldn't believe perfectly, but whose life would then be marked by faith and marked in faith by his obedience to God through his life. And, and there's plenty of places where we could point and say, man, he's not perfect. He wasn't. But at the end of his life, in Genesis chapter 2, or near the end of his life, in Genesis 22, God tests him. And he says, this son that I've given you, Isaac, The one that I promised you. The one that you love. Your only son. Take him and sacrifice him. Kill him. You know what Abraham does? He gets up in the morning, he takes him in, he loads up some wood on a donkey, and he takes his son, and, and they head out. He obeys. The son that God had miraculously enabled his wife to bear. The the son by whom that God was going to bring a blessing to all nations. Now we know in Paul and Galatians that that ultimately this, this seed that was a blessing to all nations was Jesus. But the line starts with Isaac. This miracle baby. This baby that should have never been born. That grew into a young man. And Abraham obeys God. And the scripture tells us that it was counted to him as righteousness. Obedience, it, it clearly seems to, to important to James. I mean, you can see this across his letter. I think that's one of the reasons he uses Abraham, because he so clearly denies himself to obey God. He, but, but, but James, this is not the first time. He references, across chapter 1 and 2, he references the royal law, the perfect law, the law of liberty, the whole law. Seven times across these two chapters, there's nearly 50 commands in just 108 verses. 50 commands for Christians to follow. I think, I I think we can infer, I think we can understand that obedience is critical to James. But right here we learn that James is less concerned about your obedience than he is about the trueness or the saving ability of your faith. James isn't demanding you obey so that you can be counted righteous. He's demanding and calling Christians to obey because he cares about your soul. He, he isn't giving you a law to live by so that you can be counted righteous. He's saying, if you trust in Christ, then act like it. Let it be seen your whole life. Not just when you show up at church on Sunday, not just when someone happens to bring it up at work. they should already know by what you do that you believe. So that when you get, begin to speak about this Christ that saves, it shouldn't surprise them. See, he's, James is primarily concerned about our faith and helping us live in accordance with what we say we believe. He is clearly concerned about our obedience that our submission that's expressed in obedience our submission that's expressed in humility I, I, obedience i think is obvious when you talk about submission i think that's pretty obvious uh that means i'm going to obey god well but i think humility is, is another part of this Another way to consider it, I think, if you will. The the idea is getting ourselves in the right position before God. He is our creator. He is our God. He is the one who has all authority. He's the one who rules from heaven. So that when he enters into our existence and speaks to us like Abraham does. Hey, get up and go to this land. I'm going to show you. We do it. Rather than question it. Abraham wasn't perfect. His faith wasn't perfect. Twice he lied about who his wife was so that he could protect himself. Once he got tired of waiting on God to fulfill the promise that he was going to have a son and he and his wife got together and devised a plan. Well, it was kind of brought to him by his wife. Man, women. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Strike that. We'll edit that part out. He and Sarah get to talking and decide, hey, why don't you sleep with my handmaiden and have a son or, or have a child? Now, we know that God's involved in that because there's only so much we can do in the act of procreation, right? We, we have a part to play, but it takes God to bring life. So we know that God was involved. But the reality is we've been living with the consequence of that ever since. Not just us. It's, they, they've been at odds. In fact, if you think about where Islam would make its claim to start, they they consider Ishmael the son of promise, not Isaac. We're still at odds. So he wasn't perfect, but the overarching expression of his life. The overarching presentation of his life was one that God was God he was to be worshipped. He was creator. He had authority. And Abraham was below him. Abraham belonged to him. Abraham was his. It's not the only time we see it in Abraham. As James points out repeatedly in his letter. He's already highlighted it in James chapter 1. In, in chapter 1 verses one, 1 through 9 through 11, he's talking about wealth and finding our identity and our exaltation, not in our social economic standing, but instead in our salvation, in our relationship to God. He's calling us to humble ourselves. And, he, and he's going to say it more plainly in John or James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. There's a reality that faith leads us to a place where we no longer stand to command God, but we bow before him. At times we're going to find ourselves prostrate. He is the authority. He is the creator. We are the creation. If we're trying to make our own way, do our own thing, that is not faith in God. That's not faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is faith in self. Submission to God implies humility. Humility. Obedience to God demands humility because we're never going to obey Him if we think we got a better plan than Him. Oh, His sexual ethic, ah, you know that's old school. i got a better plan. Why, why does God care what I do with my money why would he have anything to say about how I use my energy and spend my time? You see, if, if we can make up our own rules and live by our own authority, it's because we're not humble. We're arrogant. We don't see ourselves as dependent upon the one who created us. And if we're not humble before him, we're never going to obey him. And if we're not obeying him, we're not submitting to him. And if we're not submitting to him, we must not have faith in him. I think this also implies trust. Abraham obviously trusts God, right? You know the story. When he sees the mountain from a, a long ways off, he, he, he says to the men that he brought with him, you, you stay here. My son and I, Isaac and I, we're gonna go over, we're gonna worship, and, and then we're both gonna we're we're gonna come to you again. We're both gonna go over, we're both gonna come back. That's the, the way it's presented. Genesis 15, 5. Then when Isaac questioned him about the sacrifice on the way, so here's Isaac. They they take the wood off the donkey, they leave the donkey with the men. Isaac's carrying the wood that he's about to be laid on for the sacrifice, and Isaac's walking, just walking with his dad. Hey dad, we got the wood. Got the fire, where's the sacrifice? Oh, the Lord will provide. Now, it seems like a leap from there to to think, oh man, he's trusting God that he's going to provide something? Like, Does he really believe that that there's going to be a ram on that mountain that's going to replace his son? Now, the, the writer of Hebrews gives us insight to that. The writer of Hebrews lets us know that Abraham believed, considered it was within God's power to raise Isaac from the dead. He trusted God's promise that through Isaac, and the line that would come from Isaac, there would be a seed that would come that would bless all nations. He believed that Isaac was the son of promise. That He believed what God had told him. He trusted it implicitly. And he trusted that God was powerful enough not just to say those things, but to bring them for, to fruition to the point that when his son says, where's the sacrifice? He's not thinking, I'm going to kill you and you're never coming back. He thinks, you're going with me. I'm going to kill you. and then i'm going to bring you back because god brought you back that's faith brothers and sisters that's that's trust that's such a deep and abiding trust in in god and his power that he acts upon it james is highlighting this all over these first two chapters it's not just abraham all over the opening of this letter. It's a trust so deep that when we step into difficult circumstances, we don't whine and moan and groan and think, God, why? No. We listen to James and we count it all joy when facing trials of various kinds. Because we know that our faith is being proven genuine, that it is being proven, proven to be a saving faith. It is being strengthened. Our faith is growing in its endurance. It's leading us to a point where we will be complete, lacking in nothing. That's James 1, 2, through 4. and James 1, through 5, through 8, our faith leads us to act, ask for wisdom when we don't understand. See, trust, as we see it in the verses that follow, trust doesn't desire a different set of circumstances. It's not running off after its own desires. It is recognizing that God is testing our faith to prove our faith, to strengthen our faith, to make us complete and perfect and lacking in nothing. Faith trusts God. It submits in trust. So there's any number of circumstances I could point at, to, to exemplify this, to illustrate this, but, but one struck me last week as I was sitting in the hospital visiting Jenny, who you all have heard, uh, you've all known, and she's had struggles for over a year now, uh, just dealing with different health issues, and uh, this last, most recent one, she went in for surgery, standard, you know, wasn't anything uh, they thought they were going to do, the hysterectomy, uh, and then um, she'd go home. In the middle of it, they find out she's got cancer. And there's a blow. That's hard. Imagine, after about, I don't know, a year, year and a half of suffering and struggling in your health, you find out there's one more thing. I was so encouraged. I asked her, Jenny, how you doing? Not how you doing. (laughs) It wasn't that. How is your spirit? I love Jesus. I trust him. My joy is in him. You know what she didn't say to me? She didn't say, Seth, I wish I could figure out a way to get out of this. I think God's forgotten me. She didn't say anything like that. She didn't say, oh, man, why is he doing this? I'm not suggesting that she's perfect. I don't doubt that some of that stuff has come up in her mind. but, But the immediate answer to her question, she didn't even think about it, was, I love him. She trusts God so much that even in the depth of difficulty, she loves. And this, brothers and sisters, I think is the epitome of what it looks like to submit to God, that you love him more than you love self. In fact, James calls that out. Also, he equates all of this, this idea of submitting to God, to loving God. In James 1.12, let me just read it to you. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The idea of faith and love are wrapped together. The promise of life and salvation are are wrapped together. They're intertwined together with the idea of faith and love. If we have faith, the the, the kind of faith that saves, we don't just know God. We don't just have a profession of God. We love God. God we love him we love him that's the first perspective man we got a little ways to go but we'll get there quick I promise the second perspective we see in the contrast or the, not the contrast but the complement between the first and the fourth illustration the object in both of these is others Saving faith serves God's people no matter what the cost. Now, I I call out God's people because I think it's clearly demonstrated here. I don't want to say that we serve God's people to the exclusion of people outside of the church. What I'm suggesting is that there's a primary responsibility in the church that we do good to everyone... This is Galatians 6, verse 10. We do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. That there's a priority on each other. That we love one another well so that the people outside the church can be loved well. We don't love each other to the exclusion of the people outside the church. We love each other for the purpose of extending that love beyond the church. That's the idea. Saving faith serves God's people no matter what the cost. We see this exemplified in Rahab we see the contrast of, of Rahab against the person who knows the need, sees the need, and does not do anything about the need. Rahab was a harlot. She was a prostitute. Who, when the spies from Israel came to her, responded. You can read about this in Joshua 2. When the, spies, when the spies came to her, she devised a plan to protect them when it came to the king's knowledge that there were spies in the city. And so I think there's some ways we need to think about what it means to serve. I don't think we can just say serves and just walk on and and not understand. Let me just highlight these for you. First, I think there's there must be an attitude faith that serves God's people is going to be beneficial to God's people. It must be beneficial. If you're not really helping someone, you might just be stroking your own ego. You might just be making yourself feel good about yourself. I highlighted this last week when I said the the, the modern thing to do is, oh, well, let me know if you need anything. Well, the words are nice, but that's not really of a benefit to anybody. I'm not suggesting there's never a time to say that, but if you know the need, if you see the need, and you do nothing about the need, you are not being beneficial to anyone. James is clearly concerned about this. This is clearly an issue for him because you can see it in the very passage that precedes this. He's already addressed partiality. He's already said that it, can't, it doesn't fit. It does not fit in and among God's people. It's out of step with the gospel. It is, it is a contrast to what gospel people should be doing. Do not show partiality as you hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just before that, he showed us that the true religion, and false religion is worthless, but true religion, he says, is pure undefiled before God, the Father, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. There's a Automatic intention and benefit to people outside yourself. In a church culture that's all about coming to consume and get what you can so you can go on, that is a radically different attitude. We're called to be beneficial to each other. Faith isn't just about interaction. It's not just about showing up and socializing. As important as this is, please, don't ever, don't ever hear me say, don't let anyone say around you, and don't believe it if they do say it. Our social interaction, our life together matters. But if all we're doing is showing up and hanging out and talking about the drinks we drink, the foods we eat, the games we watch, and we are never serving one another, benefiting one another, whether that be through conversation and preaching the gospel to one another, or whether that be through acts of service that meet a need, then you can't call that church. You see, you can be in the lion's club and hang out with folks. If you're truly going to be a benefit to one another, it is an expression of faith in Christ. So beneficial, that's service. Sacrificial. Rahab, obviously sacrificial in the sense that she was willing to do this no matter what it cost her. What would have happened to Rahab if she had been caught in this? Killed. Killed. Her life was at stake. Her life was at stake. Tell me there wasn't a sacrifice there. Now she knew, right? She already knows. She's already like, hey, if I help you, can you help me? Can you be a benefit to me? Can you be a blessing to me? She knows that this is a two-way street. She is for the joy set before her, enduring this risk to save God's people, to serve God's people. That's exactly what she did, and that's exactly what Jesus did. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Serving each other costs. I'm going to say this, I'm going to try to say it as gently as possible. But for, if you're a member here, I want you to hear it. I think it's an, an attitude has to continue to be addressed in, among us. If you're not a member here, uh, you can listen. And you should take this attitude to go and be wherever you're a member. We exist as a church to honor God, to worship and lead others to worship If you are a member of this church, one of the ways we have laid out for that to happen is through serving each other selflessly. That means without thought to self, right? It should not be that when we ask for help in any area, that no one answers. That everyone assumes somebody else will take care of that. We exist to be a blessing to you, but we exist to be a blessing to you so that you can be a blessing to others. You see, it takes a faith in God, a trust in God that says he is going to protect me. He is going to provide for me. He is going to make sure I get what I need. And I am going to run headlong into serving his people, even though I don't feel called to children's ministry. Even though I don't feel called to stand at a door and shake people's hands. Even though I don't feel called to get up and go to Africa. Brothers and sisters, if you are members of this church, you are called. Because that's what this church is about doing. And that's how we organize it. You don't need the Holy Spirit to show up in your life and say, go serve in the kids' ministry. You don't need the Holy Spirit to show up in your life and say, walk around the campus and keep us secure. You don't need the Holy Spirit to show up in your life and say, I should be here on Sunday morning even though I'd really rather sleep in. You know why? Because that's what this church does. If God called you to be a member here, he's called you to that. You don't need the Holy Spirit to show up and tell you that. We serve selflessly because faith is sacrificial in its service. That's the example that he shows out. Because if we're going to serve God's people, we must sacrifice. It must cost us. We must be proactive. We must be proactive. This was Rahab's plan. She wasn't coerced into it. So just, just know, I'm not trying to coerce you into the, the... I'm just trying to give some instruction. I'm not trying to coerce you into the kids ministry. That's not my intention. In fact, well, I'm, I'll just move on. Let's just keep going. She's not coerced into it. She comes up with it on her, on her own. So far as we can see in the text, you go back and read Joshua 2 verses 1 through 7. No one brings this to Rahab. Rahab says, I'm going to take care of this. She is proactive in the process. And James has already made this point when he, earlier, when he, when he says that, say, saying that a blessing instead of a striving to help them, you know, just, oh, bless you, I hope you keep warm and well fed. No, he's talking about a proactiveness, the one that sees the need and goes to serve the need. The, the call is, faith is proactive. The, the, the expectation is that to, in service, you're not sitting around waiting for somebody to tell you, oh, there's a need, you're looking for need. And then you're looking to be the answer to that need because you trust God is going to provide for your everything else so that you can, you can carry that cost. You can pick up that cross and walk behind Him. And again, this service is, is, is about love. James equates it all to love. James one, eight. I think I wrote that verse down wrong. That's definitely not one eight. That's a double minded man. It's in the verses just in chapter two, verse eight. Sorry, it's James chapter two, verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. This is an act of love. It's an act of compassion and concern, willingness to, to be good to another person at your own cost. That's love. And to summarize these two principles, the idea is that saving faith loves God and loves his people. Does that sound familiar? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And by the way, the second's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers and sisters, faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ saves those as honorable as Abraham and as unsavory as Rahab. But the faith that saves is a faith that submits to God and serves God's people no matter what the cost. No matter what. What the cost? Abraham was about to give up his only son. Rahab was willing to give up her only life. I'm thankful that that's not the norm. But what if it was? See, I don't want to deny the cost. I don't want to ignore the cost. One other common ground that Abraham and Rahab have between each other is that they faced the cost. Because more important to them than themselves was God and God's people. Is your faith working? Is your faith saving you? If it's not, if it's not at work, let me just say it's because you believe in something else. And would you turn and trust in Jesus Christ alone? And if it is at work, and you see that you are doing this not so that you can prove your righteousness before God, but because you have been made righteous before God, if your faith is at work, then let me encourage you to stand assured in your acceptance before God. You are righteous. You have access to the Father of heaven. Not because of what you have done, but because of you have trusted in what Jesus Christ Has done in your place and for your sin. Let's pray.